0: You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning. Are you hearing me through the speakers or just from my voice? Alright, wonderful. Hey, it's really good to be with you this morning in the house of God. Uh, my name is Matt Tollander. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here at Midtown, if you don't know me. And this morning we're going to continue our series on community that we've, we've called Life Together. So I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of our teaching text this morning. And then we'll get into it because we've got some good stuff to unpack uh, out of the scriptures this morning. So this morning's teaching text is coming from Ephesians chapter 4. So here now the very words of God. Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you too were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes, but practicing the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into Christ who is the head. From him the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. These are God's words to us this morning. Please be seated. And Lord, may the meditations uh, of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable to you, our strength and our Redeemer. We opened up this series on community by talking about uh, the fact that God exists in an eternal self-giving community that Christians call the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three separate and yet unified co-equal persons of God. And because humankind has been created in God's image, we were created to image community with one another and to be unified with one another, to need one another in a sense, and to be connected to one another. And last week, we talked about the fact that that God in Christ has adopted us into a new family. And so we leave our previous conceptions of what family is, and we enter into the family of God with one another. And what we're going to talk about this morning is how we practice those things. How do we practice that kind of community, that kind of union? How do we practice that kind of family? How do we practice the community that Christ makes possible by his own death and resurrection and I want to argue this morning that the way we practice community is by becoming a community of practice. The way we practice community is by becoming a community of practice. You know the Bible actually gives us a description of a community of practice, a community which is based on practice. It's found in Acts chapter 2. And here's how uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, here's how he describes a community of practice. He says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together. Uh, "...by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved." What we see in this passage is a picture of what is possible in the community that Christ has established, the community that he came to bring, the community he invites us into. This is a picture and a vision of what we can experience when we engage and participate in that community. But unfortunately, many of us never actually get to the point where we we are participating in a community like this. And if if you're a person who maybe hasn't spent a Well, I should say, if you are a person who has spent a lot of time in church, maybe you grew up in church, inherited your faith, it's possible that the church community that you grew up in or came out of was not a community like this. It was not a practice-based community. Um, Very often, what we experience in our church communities is not actually a community of practice, but a community of preferences, a community of preferences. And interestingly enough, the Bible actually gives a description of a community of preferences too in the book of Second Americans. Chapter 4, here's what it, here's what it says in 2nd Americans, chapter 4 the community of preference. It says, They studied the apostles' teaching when they had the time. They went to fellowship whenever they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectation for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but kept all of their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to a worship gathering. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people, and occasionally someone was randomly saved. Have any of all experienced a community of preference before? (laughs) I have. Um, Here's how you get a community of preference. You get a community of preference when you have uh, a bunch of Christians who come together to associate together, but they mostly know Jesus from the shoulders up. We mostly know Jesus in the head. It's an intellectual project. We know him with our minds, but we don't really know him with our whole being and with our whole selves. And if we want to, if we're going to participate in and experience and engage the community that Jesus makes possible, then that means that we have to learn to embody Christ in his community. Um, That's what it means to practice. That's what it means to participate. Practice is embodied participation. It's not just about what we know or what we think or about what we believe. It's about who we are becoming together as we embody the practices. Um, And so what we're going to look at this morning are the foundations of a community of practice. Because just a quick show of hands, who would prefer to live in the community of preference over the community of practice? Anybody? Like community of preference sounds great to me. None of us. None of us want that. And yet, unless we become intentional about embodied participation, that is where we will end up as a community together. Um, And likewise, which one of those two communities does the world desperately need? A community of practice or a community of preference? The world... Thank you, (laughs) thank you. It wasn't a trick question. Uh, Our world and our city, especially our city, is desperate for a community of practice. And so what are the foundations of a community of practice? We're going to look at Ephesians 4 together. And what we're going to do is, and I'm breaking it up into sections, and in each section, I want to draw out something about the way that Christ relates to his community, and then I want to indicate a way that we embody Christ in the community through our practice. So we're going to do that in these different sections. And starting in... In verses 1 to 3, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first thing we see from this passage is that Christ is the foundation of his community. Christ is the foundation of his community. Um, and this is, it is his community, in case there was confusion about that. This is not our community. It doesn't belong to us. We don't set the agenda for this community. We belong to Christ. He established it, and he sets the agenda Paul references uh, the calling with which we've been called. And when he says that, he's referencing something that he explains at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, um, specifically that God's destiny for God's people, God's destiny for us, is to make us holy and blameless in Christ. And in order to do that, God adopted us into this new spiritual family, into a new community on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. And so God's intention for his community is to inject the fullness of his goodness into our lives. Paul calls it it the incomparable riches of his grace, but he wants to inject the fullness of his goodness into our lives. And that goodness is accessed as we participate in Christ, and as we participate in Christ by participating in his body. We participate in Christ by participating in his community. Um, and so this is, this is the first thing that we see from the passage, that Christian community is founded on Christ. He's the foundation of the community. And that may actually sound so obvious as to go without saying, uh, but there are some pretty massive implications of this. Um, in his book, Life Together, uh, which is where we got the title for this series, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, explains one of the massive implications of the fact that Christ is the foundation of his community. He writes this, "Because Christian community is focused or excuse me because Christian community is founded solely on Jesus Christ, it is a spiritual and not a human reality. In this, it differs absolutely from all other communities." So before we move on in the quote, this is something we need to recognize is that Christian community When we say the words Christian community, we are making a claim that we are involved in something together which is distinct, which is separate, and which is superior to all other forms of community. And part of that is because Jesus is the foundation. We're going to discover more reasons why Christian community is that way. But it starts with he's the foundation. So Bonhoeffer says, it differs, Christian community differs absolutely from all other communities. Christian community is not an ideal that we must realize, it is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. So Christian community is not something we establish. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we create. It's not something for us to strive for, and it's not something for us to accomplish. It's something for us to participate in. It exists whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we participate in it or not, and it is available to all of us whether we realize it or not. So how do we practice Christ as the foundation of his community? I think we do it through... um, Through this posture that Paul identifies in verse 2 of our passage, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love. So we practice Christ as the foundation by embodying humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. You know, at the time that the New Testament was written, humility was not a celebrated character trait. Um, none of the great Greek philosophers, none of the great Roman philosophers or orators identify humility as a virtue, not one. And yet, humility is at the core of Jesus' being. When Jesus summarized the content of his character, he used these same two words. He said, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And this is something that's caught root in the heart of the Apostle Paul, the author of this text. You know, in another place, Paul marvels at the humility of Christ that would lead Christ to submit himself even to death and death on a cross at the hands of the Romans. Um, When you read Paul's letters, you begin to see that humility is this fixation for him. It's such a high priority in his life. It's because humility is really at the heart of what it means to be Christ-like. Humility is at the heart of what it means to be Christ-like. And if Christ is the foundation of our community, then humility b- will be required of any of us who want to participate in the kind of community that Christ makes possible. So that's our first, our first principle, is that Christ is the foundation of his community, and we embody that principle uh, when we embody humility and gentleness. Let's move into our second section, which is the best of the four sections, um, or at least my favorite, it's the most fun. Starting in verse four, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope of your calling, the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What we see in these verses is that Christ unifies and mediates his community. Christ unifies and mediates his community. Let's talk about unity, then let's talk about mediation. Um, Christ unifies his community. In other words, we have union with one another specifically because we have union with Christ. It's not so much that we're connected to one another in human terms. It's that all of us are united with Christ in, in a deep way that changes our identity and changes everything about us. But then the fact is that everyone else who is united with Christ shares in that identity. And so because of our union with Christ, we have a supernatural union with everyone else in Christ's community. And that means that our destinies are tied up with one another's. Um, When we're initiated into the community of God through baptism, we're pulled out of the water into a new reality in, in which we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ And then by extension, we belong to his community, the church, and we actually belong to one another. And yet within this unity, there's still differentiation because Christ not only unifies the community, he also mediates his community. Paul wrote in another one of his letters, he wrote this, he said, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, for Paul, the reality of Christ's atoning work on the cross, it puts a filter, a lens between himself and everyone else. It means that every relationship, every connection, every interaction between human beings in Jesus' community has to be redefined in light of the reality of the gospel. And so the implication of this is that there's, in the community of Christ, there's actually never any immediate relationship between human beings. In God's family, there's no interaction or relationship that does not directly involve the presence and the action of Christ. And so on Thursdays, when I have my one-on-one meeting with Jake, it's not a one-on-one meeting. Christ is always present with us, mediating our relationship, acting in and through us, whether we're aware of it or recognize it or not. And so the reality of Christ's mediating presence in his community, it forces us to shift our understanding of what it means to love one another. Here's Bonhoeffer again from Life Together. He says this, Jesus Christ stands between the lover and the others he loves. Because Christ stands between me and others, I dare not desire direct fellowship with them, as only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I may be saved. So others, too, can be saved only by Christ himself. This means that I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, and dominate him with my love. Thus, this spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ and that love of others is wholly dependent upon the truth in Christ. So Christ is mediating all of our relationships, he is present in and working in and through and between each one of us. How do we practice Christ's mediation? How do we make a a practice of putting the cross and the gospel as the filter in our relationships uh, from one to another? I think we do it by practicing three things, and those three things are confession, absolution, and imputation. I'm going to explain these, okay? I know that those are those are kind of strange, strange words that's inside, inside baseball language for Christians. But here's what we mean. Uh, if the Apostle Paul and Diedrich Bonhoeffer and myself are right, uh, and Christ mediates every relationship between people in his community, then what that means is that there are ways of relating to people which are taken off the table as options. They are non-options now. So the cross of Christ means, for example, that unforgiveness is off the table. The cross of Christ means that judgment is off the table. It means that self-righteousness is off the table. It means that trying to control people is off the table. The problem is that if we're honest this morning, those things are very present, actually, uh, in our hearts and in our relationships. So they're, they're off the table, they're illegitimate ways of relating to one another, and nevertheless, they're present in our lives. Here's the reality is if we're clinging to unforgiveness or judgment or self-righteousness or control, then we're refusing Christ's invitation to live in the kind of community that his death and resurrection made possible. So how do we deprogram those, those impulses? How do we deprogram the, the impulse to want to hang on to bitterness in our hearts, to want to condemn others when, when we disapprove of their life? How do we deprogram the impulse uh, to be self-righteous and to see ourselves as superior and to want to control other people? We do it through confession, absolution, and imputation. So in confession, we simply, we confess our sins to God and others. What's one of your sins? Lying. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. I was sitting in the back going, me too. Me too. I, I lie to, to people every day, <laughs> seems like. It's not, it's not always total truth with me. It's not always total vulnerability with me. I have room to grow in that. We confess our sins to one another. Friedrich, and, and to God especially, Friedrich Buechner, uh, who passed away recently and, and whose writing, I really, really adored. Um, he said this in his book, Wishful Thinking, about confession. He said, to confess your sins to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. Until we confess our sins to God, they are the abyss between us. But when we confess them, they become the bridge. See, the act of of confessing our shortcomings and our dysfunction to God and other people is embarrassing. Uh, It can be an act of humiliation, but the fruit of humiliation is humility. And if the fruit of humiliation is humility, then humility or humiliate, I got to start this whole sentence over. The fruit of humiliation is humility, and if humility is the essence of Christ-likeness, then humiliation is a path to likeness. And our unconfessed sin can be the abyss between us and God, it can be the abyss between us and other people. It's isolating, it's alienating, and yet when we take the risk and enter into vulnerability and confession with God and others, we find, um, we find an intimacy and a connection that was simply unavailable before. Um, and so I want to encourage you this morning that to be ninety-nine percent known by people is to be unknown. It's actually confession and vulnerability uh, that draws us closer, closer to God and, and closer to others. And confession is also necessary for transformation. It's necessary. There is no transformation, there is no healing without confession. It's not enough for us to just be silently remorseful in our hearts. Um, we have to retrieve the things that we hide in the darkness and we have to bring them into the light so that they can be healed. And this wisdom is embodied and proved over and over and over again in recovery groups and in 12-step programs um, when participants complete steps 4 and 5 in which they make a fearless and searching moral inventory of their lives and then they admit the exact nature of their wrongs to God, to themselves, and to another human being the available data shows us there's no healing without confession. And so it starts there. We, we embody, we practice Christ's mediation when we practice confession. But then we also practice absolution. Absolution is a way of saying, it, it's, it's declaring the forgiveness of God to somebody. Absolution is forgiveness, either declaring to someone that God forgives them, declaring to someone that you forgive them. Absolution is about forgiveness. So Here's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross for the sin of the world, this is what Christians believe. When Jesus died on the cross for the sin of the world, what happened was that the only just judge in the universe was judged in our place. And therefore, if that cross stands between us and the people around us, then judgment and unforgiveness are never legitimate ways of regarding others, ever. They're never legitimate. They're off the table. And so when someone has sinned against you and they've confessed it, You have no right to hold it over their head in relationship. The cross of Christ takes it off the table. Jesus was hardly ever as clear as he was when he said, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. It's because when we harbor unforgiveness in our heart, we're denying the cross of Christ. Likewise, we don't have a right to condemn others when Jesus has already been condemned in their place. When someone's brave enough to come to us and to confess their shortcomings, to confess their dysfunction, to confess their sin, a Christ-mediated response is to remind them of the truth of the gospel. Um, When I do this for people, uh, I love to use these words from Colossians 1, uh, which Paul also wrote. He said, once you were alienated from God, an enemy in your mind because of your evil behavior... But now, God has reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you three things, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Free from accusation. Free from the accusation of God, free from the accusation of the enemy, and free from the accusation of judgmental people who are too blind to see the bloody cross that is standing in the middle of the relationship. When we refuse to practice absolution, when we do not express forgiveness to people, or we do not express to people that God has forgiven them when they confess to us, then we're working against the work of God in their life. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. And we practice imputation. We practice imputation. Imputation is a way of saying treating people as they are not. Treating people as they are not. Imputation is a a theological term, uh, and it's it's a term that describes how a holy God can relate to guilty sinners like us. Um, God reconciles us to himself on account of Christ. We just heard that from... Colossians 1. And God, because he's reconciled us to himself on account of Christ, he considers us to be in the right with him, even though in and of ourselves we're still just as selfish, just as rebellious, just as dysfunctional as before. And God doesn't infuse Christ's righteousness into us. He imputes Christ's righteousness into us, or to us, so which is to say he regards us, he treats us as we aren't. He insists on treating us As righteous despite all evidence to the contrary. And it's actually something about that that produces change in our lives. The Apostle John wrote that we love because he first loved us. I've always loved uh, the words of a hymn I found in a Lutheran uh, hymn book when I was in college at Concordia University. Uh, It's a hymn called My Song is Love Unknown. And the first line of the hymn says this, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love for me. Love to the loveless shown." That they might lovely be, we love because of the love given to us. It's actually the imputation of God that produces transformation and change in our lives. But it's not just God who practices imputation. we can practice imputation. One way of putting this that I think is, is really beautiful um, is that we can experiment with grace as though it's true. We can experiment with grace as though it's true. The mediation of Christ makes this possible. So for example, in relationships, um, married folks, have you found, just in your experience of marriage, have you found um, that constantly reminding your spouse of the ways they're letting you down in the relationship uh, makes them love you more and inspires them and produces radical transformation in their character? Have you found that? No? Okay, what if you were to experiment with grace as though it's true? What if you were to treat them as they're not? Because the other strategy is not working for you. Why not try a different strategy? Or parents, um, being hard on your kids when they mess up won't lead to the transformation of their character. It'll just make them want to hide from you. So why not impute a better identity to them? Why not experiment with grace as though it's true? That's what the mediation of Christ makes possible. If through the cross of Christ, we've been crucified to other people and they've been crucified to us, it means we actually have an incredible opportunity to to let people off the hook in relationships and to give them the love that they don't deserve. Why? Because God has given us love that we don't deserve. And we love because he first loved us. So when we practice imputation, when we show people love they don't deserve, we're practicing the mediation Of Christ in his community. Moving into the next section, verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then skipping to verse 11, and he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is to build up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person, attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So we're no longer to be children, tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. What we see in this section is that Christ is the goal of his community. Christ is the goal of his community. Paul gives these examples in this section of the gifted people. He he mentions apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. Gifted people, to be sure. But the gifts are not the point. The gifts aren't the point. The gifts are given to people for the purpose of building the community into maturity in Christ. So Christ is the goal. And that means that Christian community is not about what we can do for each other. Uh, and it's not even necessarily about what we'll do together. It's about who we're becoming together as we submit ourselves to Christ because he is the goal of his community. Paul says that we're no longer to be children. So Christ's community exists to bring us into spiritual adulthood. And we cannot, we cannot, um, we cannot progress towards spiritual adulthood, spiritual maturity. We cannot do that on our own, not very effectively. Um, when I was in the fifth grade, my parents bought me a guitar for Christmas. They, they made me take piano lessons before that, and, and I, I uh, learned a little bit about music through that, but didn't necessarily love playing the piano and kind of thought the piano was for girls. Um, and I had like a friend at school who played the guitar, and I was like, "He's pretty cool. I, I wish I could play the guitar." So I begged and begged and begged my parents to get me a guitar. They finally got me one for Christmas, and I was attached to it immediately. I mean, just started learn, trying to learn every song I could learn, trying to learn everything there was. This is before, like, YouTube and lessons and stuff. So I was learning to play by ear, and I was really coming along. And, um, and I actually, I started to get pretty good. Um, in fact, I, w- I was the best guitarist in my bedroom. <laughs> <Me> too, <man. laughs> uh, and, then, and then what happened is after a couple years, I started playing in bands with people who were much better musicians than me. And what happened is that I began to improve exponentially because I was accessing the skills and the insights of the other players. And I was learning from their experience. Um, And it didn't take me long to realize that, that it was much better for my musical development to be the worst musician in a band of good musicians than to be the best musician in my bedroom alone. And growing in spiritual maturity is the same way. You know, I used to think that, that spiritual maturity was developed in privacy and then shown off in relationships. And now I know that character is actually developed in community and then tested in isolation. Uh, Suzanne Farrell said something so insightful last Thursday in our MC that I've been thinking about ever since. She said, love requires an object. Love requires an object. So, in, in grammatical terms, the sentence I love you has a subject, I, a verb, love, and an object, you. Love is sort of specific in that way. It's not like an energy, it's not a vibe we put off, it's an action. It's a direct action toward an object, it's something we do to people. And we don't become more competent lovers of people in isolation. It's impossible. To grow in love, we have to actually be engaged with people whom we can practice loving. So we only grow in love. We only grow in spiritual maturity in the context of relationship. And that's what it means that Christ is the goal. So how do we practice Christ as the goal? We practice Christ as the goal through apprenticeship to Jesus. Apprenticeship to Jesus. So we're not just students of Jesus. This is not just an above-the-shoulders process. Apprenticeship is a whole life process. Apprenticeship is not about gaining new knowledge, it's about learning new skills. The goal of apprenticeship is competency. The goal is that the skills of the teacher will be reproduced in the student in the context of relationship, and that will involve growing in knowledge, but knowledge is a byproduct of that process, not the goal. The goal is to grow in skill. The goal is to grow in competency and I've, I've known many people in my life, I've been a person at times who, who you know, that know a lot about the Bible and have a very extensive theological vocabulary um, and can tell you, you know, any number of things about Jesus from a biblical perspective or a theological perspective or a historical perspective. But it's all, it's all just, it's all in the head. It's disembodied. Um, it's book knowledge. It's not relationship knowledge. It's all, it's intellectual and not relational, um, Paul warned the believers in Corinth about what that kind of above-the-shoulders spirituality produces in people. He wrote this. He said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So one of the reasons we have to practice becoming more competent lovers of people in apprenticeship to Jesus um, is because it's so much easier to know something than to love somebody. It's so much easier to know something than to love somebody. And Jesus didn't call us to know things. He called us to love people, and we have to spend the time in relationship with him to learn how to do that. He doesn't just call our minds. He, calls, he doesn't just call our hearts. He calls our entire being. There's no part of us which Jesus intends to leave untouched. And so the goal of this apprenticeship is that we would be confident excuse me, competent as we learn how to embody the love of Christ. One of the things that we have to do in order to pursue apprenticeship to Jesus is we have to identify who or what kind of things we have apprenticed under already in our life. And we have to hold them up to Jesus and ask, "Is is this other stuff that I've learned or this other stuff that's been programmed into me, is this helping me become a better lover of people? Is this helping me become a more gentle and humble person? Is this producing Christ's likeness in me? So other things that apprentice us, our family of origin apprentices us, either for better or for worse. Our church of origin, the spirituality that we grow up in, apprentices us and forms us for better or for worse. The world we live in apprentices us and forms us for better or for worse. So when we came to Jesus, we were already apprentices of something. And we were already in the process of becoming somebody and being formed into something or someone's image. We have to spend the time necessary in relationship with Jesus for him to wipe away the stuff that needs to be wiped away. Um, Or he said in the Gospels, everything not planted by my Father will be pulled up by the root. Can we give Jesus the time in the garden to pull the weeds and to sow the seeds of his character in our lives? So that's the third one, is that Christ is the goal of his community, and we practice Christ as the goal when we become apprentices of Jesus. Lastly, last section, verses 15 and 16, but practicing the truth in love, and that's the title of this message, by the way, practicing the truth in love, practicing the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. From him, the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting lim- ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. So, what we see from these verses is that Christ sustains his community. Christ sustains his community. Paul says that from him, the whole body grows. All of us share, as human beings, we all share these common spiritual and emotional needs. We all have the need to feel accepted. We all have a need uh, to feel approval. Um, We all have a need for encouragement, for comfort. We all have the need to feel like our identity is unaccused, um, things like that. And so if we've not been taught to receive these things from Christ through the Spirit, then what happens is that we look for them in relationships with people. And we enter into relationships with people expecting them to meet needs that they cannot ultimately meet for us and that produces dysfunction and disappointment in relationships. When we need other people to approve of us, when we need them to validate us, when we can't experience comfort unless we're experiencing comfort from other people, um, the result is that, is that it produces, It can produce anxiety, it produces codependency, it produces dysfunction in our relationships. And look, it's, it's, not that, um, it's not that people can't give us those things. People can give us those things to a degree. And it's not necessarily bad to receive those things from people, but if our, if our full expectation is for the people in our lives to meet the totality of that need, then that is going to produce brokenness in our relationships. Human beings are not capable of fully meeting each other's spiritual needs. Um, and so there was, and when we enter into relationships that way, um, the, our relationships become transactional they become transactional. It's about, I do for you, and therefore, I expect you to do for me. But Christ undermines transactional relationships this way. He sustains his community through the Holy Spirit, and therefore enables us to live in a power that's not our own. The presence of of the Holy Spirit of Christ among us means that we have an infinite spiritual resource um, that is always available to provide us with all of our spiritual needs. And that is meant to transform the way that we engage relationships. So Christ sustains his community, and we practice the sustenance of Christ when we move from transactional relationships to self-giving love. From transactional relationships to self-giving love. Here's how to draw on the sustaining resources of Christ. You can do it through prayer, especially journaling prayer. I'd encourage you uh, to do a prayer audit, And to think about how much of your time in prayer is spent sending stuff this way to God and how much of your time in prayer is spent receiving from God. How much of your time in prayer is spent rehearsing your failures to God or asking God for the things that you need or asking God for the things that other people need or for the things that you want. And look, all of that is good. We should pray for the things we want and need. We should pray for the things that other people want and need but we also need to spend the time in order to receive things from God and, in fact, begin to experiment with just simply enjoying God's presence um, in prayer. And that is one way that God in Christ through the Spirit meets our spiritual needs. Um, Prayer, journaling prayer, um, silence, silence and solitude, spending the time uh, necessary to become undistracted, to focus our attention on listening to God and receiving from God. Um, And when we draw on those resources that we have in Christ, what happens is we find ourselves operating from a posture of abundance and not a posture of scarcity. Suddenly, we have the capacity to engage relationships sacrificially without keeping score of who's giving and who's receiving and how much. We don't have to constantly be measuring what we're receiving in relationships because we're receiving more than we need in Christ through the Spirit. And so it looks like this. We receive mercy from Christ so we can be merciful to other people. We receive approval from Christ and so we can be free from the need to get approval from other people. We receive forgiveness in Christ so we can forgive others. We received an unaccused identity in Christ so we don't have to perform for others. We receive this bottomless love in Christ so that our lives can be pervaded by the same love. And in no relationship am I depending completely upon a person to meet those needs for me. It means that we're going to stop using people in relationships. We shift from transactional relationships to self-giving uh, love. I want to um, dismiss our communion servers now uh, to prepare to serve communion and invite the band up. And as we do that, let's just summarize and then we'll, we'll uh, take the Lord's Supper together. How do we practice Christian community? We practice Christian community, we practice the community of Christ by becoming a community of practice. And practice means embodied participation. We practice Christ as the foundation of our community by embodying humility. We practice Christ's mediation in our community by practicing confessing our sins to others, expressing forgiveness, and by experimenting with grace as though it's true. We practice Christ as the goal of our community when we become apprentices of Jesus who learn to love in the context of relationship. And we practice Christ's sustenance of our community when we learn to receive from him so that we are then free to give our lives away for the good of others. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.